Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to the sixth season of Spectrum. I'm your host, Tom Hansen. Spectrum covers a wide range of topics that are important to our daily lives. We feature journalists, authors, scholars, policymakers, activists, scientists, innovators, and some people who just have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Carolyn Bailey Lewis, a pioneer in public broadcasting administration. She was the first black woman to graduate from the Pearly I. Reed School of Journalism, now the Reed College of Media at West Virginia University. In 1993, she also became the first African-American woman to manage a full-service public television station in the continental United States. Dr. Lewis talks with us about the struggles and triumphs of her life's fascinating journey. Carolyn, I, I want to go over your career because it's it's been amazing. You have been a public broadcasting administrator. Uh, you got your PhD 36 years after your undergraduate degree. Uh, you became an ordained minister. You're a philanthropist. <laughs> Uh, now you're the co-founder and CEO of a specialty greeting card company. You, you have done it all, uh, but let's go back to the beginning. Um, you got a degree from West Virginia University, close to when I did, so we're close to the same age, uh, in journalism. Back when the there were few women in journalism and almost no black women in journalism. What drew you to take that step and go to journalism school, of all places, West Virginia, uh, to, to start your career? Thank you, Tom. That's a really good question. I wanted to be a nurse all of my life growing up because I grew up in Bluefield, West Virginia, in the segregated southern part of the state. That's the almost the southernmost part of West Absolutely. Virginia if anybody and goes down I-77. It's right before you go through the tunnels. That's right. So teaching and nursing was mostly what we saw. Bluefield State Teachers College, you knew you are going to be a teacher or a nurse. So in high school, my senior year, I was asked to be the reporter for our school for the local radio news. Ah, enjoyed that, had a good time. And then another student and I were asked to be reporters for the newspaper to do the weekly news from our school. And so we did that. We had a column, well, once a month rather, not weekly. 
And so the nursing issue kind of changed. And so I was in the Allstate Band. The last stop was in Morgantown, West Virginia. I told my mother, because I thought I was going to Fisk or Bluefield State. Right. I told my mother I wanted to go to West Virginia. I liked the college, so she came up for that last concert there. And so when we came back to the hotel, I told her, I said, I want to go to WVU. She said, it's 10 hours away. Well, there's no interstate That's right. from Bluefield to Morgantown then. And so that was May of 66. Now, I should have been enrolled already. But uh, they worked it out so that I could be enrolled that September. And, you know, then, Tom, no computers. You None. go to the field house <laughs> and there's big signs up there that says nursing, journalism, arts, whatever you want to do. And I looked up and saw journalism. I said, hmm, that looks interesting. I'll do that. My only role models were Nancy Dickerson and Carol Simpson uh, on TV I, I back was, then. I was going to ask you. Right. you. There were very few role exactly. models. Uh, and so I remember watching Carol Simpson and Nancy Dickerson and saying, if they can do that, maybe I can. So that's where they came from. So did you watch them as a, as a child growing up, or did that interest come when you were in college and thought, okay, I've got, I've got to look at how I'm going to mm-hmm. do this myself? Much later, I thought it would be print journalist. That's what I wanted to do. And then I had a three-hour copy lab from a Dr. Atkins, who was so evil with his red pen. <laughs> We've all had one of those, haven't we? <laughs> And so after I got through that, I said, I don't think I want to do this. And um, I had two professors who were administrators at the local WWVU TV station. And I had them and thought, maybe I'd like to go into broadcast journalism. And that's how I switched over. I think we've all had that one journalism <laughs> professor that you you turn in something that you think is sterling Office. reportage, yes. the yes. best prose ever, and it comes back and it's cut down to, to a nothing. couple of sentences <laughs> that survive. That was right? Professor Atkins. I'll never forget him. <laughs> but I bet you learned to write. I did. I learned quite a bit. I did. And and and. You know, so many people think writing's not a part of broadcast, but it is the foundation of broadcasting, Absolutely. isn't it? So, so you combined all of those. When did you get involved with – did you get involved with student media while you were an undergrad? No, I didn't. We didn't have it then. Didn't have it. When okay. I went to West Virginia University, Tom, there were 15,000 student, enro- 15, student enrollment. There were nine black women and 30 black men in 15,000 people. That so was there it. we were. And as you saw on my resume, I was the first black female graduate from the School of Journalism. There was another gentleman, uh, Mike Hodges, but I was the first woman. So we really had to forge our way. There wasn't much there for us to do other than go to class. We had a few laboratories. That was about it. Uh, how did students receive you? It was hard. Very hard. Coming from Bluefield, and I went to all black high schools, okay. uh, secondary, uh, elementary and secondary schools. Bluefield, West Virginia, did not segregate its schools until 1969. Wow. Brown versus Board was 1954. Exactly. But they had a rough school board and a superintendent who refused to integrate the schools. So um, I didn't know a lot of white culture. 
So when I went to, got to West Virginia, and my, my mother looked around. She said, you want to go where? And I said, this is where I want to come. She said, but what happened was there was a great black community. So like Mr. Rogers says, you find the helpers, and that's what we did. Uh, we, they, they helped us out. That's the only way we made it through because we were called names. You couldn't go on fraternity row because you knew that the signs and the flags would be there. Uh, we weren't included in much of anything, so we had our own little sections and parties and uh, people that we would visit and see, and, and it just grew from that. So that's, that's how we made it, just supporting each other. How did your fellow journalism students treat you? Were, were they dismissive as well? Oh, of course. Yes, they were. And um, you had to be better than, and at that time I wasn't. Uh, I didn't have much of the, our teachers in school were great, but I didn't have much of the background to know a lot of what they knew because in the white schools they had the better books the better equipment everything so i got there like a fish out of water just trying to find my way and most of us did at that time i just remember there were certain professors you knew who would be helpers and there were others that you stayed away from their classes and students as well i'm sure at during those four years that at points you got discouraged and thought, what am I doing here, and why am I trying to mm-hmm. to do this? How did you buttress yourself against the the racism and mm-hmm. and the racist thoughts, and having that seep into your own persona as maybe a defeatist attitude? You had to know my mama Thelma, who raised me. Okay. In 1947, this black woman who could pass for white, her great-great-grandmother was white, which meant, you know, this in my ancestry, too. Uh, she came to Pittsburgh to get me when my mother got sick after I was born in, in 48, and my father left. My grandmother got sick, too. And she, in 1947, Mama Thelma Stone walked into a bank in Bluefield, West Virginia, got a loan to build a hotel. Hotel Thelma, the building is still on the corner of Wayne and Logan Streets, dilapidated now, but it's still there. And um, she got a loan to build a hotel. She had a restaurant, a store, and apartments. This is a woman in in the 40s and 50s. And uh, so I watched her navigate dealing with railroad people, coal miners, the tax man, the pop man, the lawyers, all sorts of people and cultures. So... She would tell me, if they call you something else, that's not your name. Your name is Carolyn. And she would stand me on her brown seat of chest, Tom, and if I was in a place, she would say, now pronounce your words loudly and clearly. She'd stand at the back of the room. So she taught me a lot about business and dealing with people and how to maneuver. So when I graduated from West Virginia, I would involve my, immerse myself in the alumni affairs because I would go to a, a dinner, there'd be 300 people, 299 of them white and me. So I never had that fear because of her. You asked me how, because of her. So it was, it was tough, but she, uh, I watched her work hard in that restaurant. I got a good work ethic from her from 5 o'clock in the morning to 12 at night. We entertained people in the fo- late 40s, or 50s and 60s, such as Ike and Tina, James Brown stayed there. James, uh, 
Sam Cooke, Etta James, on the Chitlin circuit. Yeah. When they would come through the through small the venues, I can tell that they couldn't stay and perform anywhere else but the small auditoriums. So I knew when someone was coming on the telephone poles, you know, you didn't have internet sure. or newspaper ads. It would be Posters. big sign, James Brown Review. Now, let me tell you this. There was a family show that he brought one year. And so I got to go and dance on the stage with James Brown. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my little bold self. I just walked on up there and did Amazing. my little thing. And others, too, with James Brown. But that's where I got my boldness from, from her. From uh, Her mother had a restaurant in Bluefield. It was called Jane's Greenleaf because I did some research to see where she got her acumen, acumen from. How did she become who she was? In fact, I'm writing a book about it. I, I'm sure it's going to be speak, fascinating. As we speak. So all of your sort of background is broadcast, but I have to ask mm -hmm. you one thing. All these years after you graduated mm -hmm. in 71, all these years after, you still on your resume – list that you were a secretary for the Cooperative <laughs> Extension Service. Yes. And if I'm not mistaken, that looks like it was your first job out of school. Mm -hmm. how, how did that happen? Well, actually, my first job, other than working in a restaurant, I started wiping off tables at three years old it, in the restaurant and making and a And we're expected that, yeah. to do it, right? Right. My first job in high school, out of a summer in college was working in a funeral parlor. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> the funeral parlor director was a friend of the family. and He needed someone to get his book straightened out one summer. So he, he was in Keystone, West Virginia, about 16 miles from Bluefield. So I drove down there. And the scariest part, the embalming room was behind my desk, and it was a mirror that they could see, they that people could see into the office, but you couldn't see into the room. Right. So I always had this fear that someone was looking at me, and <laughs> the funeral director told me, "Don't be worried about them. Worried about the people who are walking around on two legs." <laughs> <laughs> so that took that fear away. But uh, that was my first kind of job, other than the restaurant. But um, they needed a secretary for the extension service, and I I saw it and I applied for it, and I need a part-time job. And uh, I applied for it, and my first boss was Linda Nine there, and she trained me how to do, how to organize, how to get things done, how to do those. And, you know, you had the mimeograph machines, sure. and you had to type on the typewriter. You got Carbon the copies. End. Carbon copy. If you left off the footnotes, you had to go back and do the whole oh, thing over. Right. You know, Tom. Oh, absolutely. So she taught me a lot about organizational skills. And she was going on maternity leave. So I told them I would take the job because I'd just been asked by w WWVU to work at the station. The two people I talked about earlier who were my professors in journalism who worked at the station asked me to come and start a job. But I promised the extension service I'd stay until Linda came back. And because of my loyalty, they remembered me and called me back to work at the station after a year. I worked there for 25 years. Well, it's, it's amazing that, you know, 
what we find important mm-hmm. still in our lives. And, and somebody yeah. looking at all of your professional <laughs> accomplishments would go, why in the yeah. world does she still have that on yeah. her resume? But obviously it was a meaningful was the time to you and, and yeah. something that you learned. She it, taught it, me never ask anyone to do something you won't do yourself. So when I got in management positions, if my secretary was stuffing envelopes, i sit there and help her. I wouldn't let her stay there all night. I would do whatever I could to help in any way I could, and she taught me that. Just as Fred Rogers said, be a helper. Yeah. <laughs> help us say that. When, when you started, uh, you were on radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody saw you. Uh, probably some people didn't know you were black. When did you cross that line to be identified as a black woman in broadcasting? It's interesting you say that because my mother, Mama Thelma, came up one time after I started working professionally. She heard my voice and she said, I said, that's me. She said, no, it's not. Who's that white woman? <laughs> because you know your voice change and sure. changes and you get this air that you don't normally have before. That's and you say, this is WNPB TV. You say it in a whole different way. And so um, I don't know. I guess when I started doing fundraisers, that was the first big thing that we started in doing when I was on the air, fundraisers and interviews on TV. You uh, you quickly moved to community relations, and I think that's what you're talking about, fund, fundraising. And, and uh, that was sort of a step from behind the microphone solely to having this interaction with the community, being a face for the station, face for public broadcasting in, in your, your area. Um, how did you feel about doing that in, in Morgantown, West Virginia? I started out as a TV writer announcer. And um, when I was promoted to that position, it was fine because I learned a little secret that when I, I read the papers a lot. I love newspapers, still do. I mean, I can read my news online, but I've got to have that print in my got hand. Got to feel it. I've got to feel it in books the same way. So when I was promoted to that position, I would read and find out who was doing what in the community. I send them a letter, congratulations on your new positions, on moving to Morgantown, on being the new bank president, whatever it might be. Could I meet with you? And so, honest to goodness, Tom, sometimes I would walk into a place and they're looking for the person and I'm it. Or they come to the station, they're looking for the general manager or the or the community relations person, and I admit, and they're still looking for that person. Even about became general manager, they're still looking for that person, <laughs> yeah. and I admit, you know, here I am. Hello. <laughs> Hello, here I am. But uh, it was fine. I just learned how to navigate and how to really, you know, you build relationships, and that's what I did. I didn't have any difficulties, whatever. Morgantown was very different from Bluefield. Very, very different in, in because the of culture, the university. Because of the university, it was very different. Yes, I, I'm sure the African American population of students grew mm-hmm. a, as you were there, and certainly after 
Uh, you were there. It probably exploded. Absolutely uh, did. Uh, uh, you, you said you spent 25 years in, in public broadcasting in, in West Virginia, right? In one place, yes. One place. Mm-hmm. And you've had all kinds of jobs, but one of the iterations I was really interested in was you were director of public information. That I understand. And graphic design. Now, now, nothing we've talked about <laughs> said that you were a graphic designer. How did that come about, and, and what did you have to do to prep yourself for that? Tom, I can't draw a straight line. <laughs> I can't, but here's the deal. <laughs> and, and that was, that was just early in computer life. That right. wasn't the kind of graphic design we could do now. That's when we still had the layout, and we had to go to the printer oh, yeah. for the proof, and then make the corrections, and then you get, get it back. You didn't do the thing yourself. So I was the public information director, and the graphic design manager took another position. So the general manager asked me if I would take over both departments until they found someone. But it wasn't about me knowing how to draw or how to do graphic design. It was how to manage the department. Okay. And that's what I did. And the two people that were in that department and I are still friends to this day. In fact, I'll talk a little bit later about another little project, uh, but we're still friends to this day that one is helping me on right now. It, it, it's it's just amazing the the throughout the your career, mm-hmm. um, and, and I don't know how to put this, so I'm just going to say it: the people you have gathered around you, uh, you didn't jettison a lot of folks. You you kept people around you as you went through the ranks and as you moved on and and that's an amazing skill that that doesn't always happen was that important to you It was Mama Thelma told me treat the janitor or the housekeeper just as you would the CEO Nobody's different when you go somewhere act like you've been there before and everyone pulls their pants up the same way. That was drilled into me. Don't be afraid of what you can't see, but just move, even if it's in the dark, as if you've got those glasses on that you can see through. And then someone else said to me, too, even with your, your eyes, someone who's blind, they said, we see with our brains. So I try to use my brain in all situations. But it was... Um, so I don't know if I answered your question, Tom, no, you, but it was— you, you did, yeah, because okay. it, it's, it's, I think, a rare gift yeah. to, to be able to, to keep mm-hmm. people close to you from yeah. so many years. Absolutely. I, I love people. I will—someone will come across my mind. I called a friend of mine in Morgantown. I don't let it slide. Joan, her name is Joan Blue. I said, how you doing? I'm just thinking about you. If— if you come across my mind, <laughs> I might, you know, too many times sure. I'll call you, Tom, and say, you're on my mind today. How are you doing? Because it might be too late tomorrow, you know. Uh, just a good example, my daughter had someone on her mind. She went to see her. The next day she's in the hospital. Oh, my. So you just have to pay attention to, to those things and just congratulate, celebrate. And I learned, too, that if, if my sister's crown is crooked, 
you straighten it up, but you don't tell everybody. You just try to treat everybody and you just fix it and keep try moving. To, try to help them out, keep but not, moving. Yeah, not blow right. your horn about that's it, right. right? Exactly. Well, in 1993, you became the first African-American woman named to manage a full-service public television station. So another one of your first, the first in the continental U.S. to do that. How did that, that – that's obviously a major accomplishment. But how did that make you feel inside? How did that – little girl from Bluefield, West Virginia, mm. feel? Or did you feel it at the time? At the time, I didn't know it. I just was happy to be named the general manager after a search in Morgantown. And interesting thing about that night, Fred Rogers was sitting beside me. It was our station's 25th anniversary in Morgantown. And I bugged David Newell so much that he finally said, okay, you got, you got Fred. <laughs> and I was getting ready to introduce him, and the executive director of West Virginia Public Broadcasting stood up and said, I've got an announcement to make. I was interim then. She said, after a nationwide search, Carolyn Lewis is the new general manager. I didn't know it at the time until I started going to PBS meetings. Didn't see anybody that looked like me. And there I was, and I learned that at some of those meetings that I was the first and so I knew that I had big, um, you know, that there were going to be some who come behind me. So I had to do this thing right. That's what I was thinking about. So I got involved as much as I could in meetings and learning all that I could. If I would see a young woman at a conference who might be a public, public information director, I would take it upon myself to talk with her and say, hey, you're here, but, you know, think about something else. I really hadn't thought about general manager until I saw so many bad ones who managed me, and I thought, okay, <laughs> uh, let me think about this. So several of them left our station. I applied for the position. I'd been there probably about 20 years then. They didn't even give me an interview, and I'd been there. I knew the station, I thought. You knew but it I inside looked, out. I looked back on it. I wasn't ready. So what I did, I would go back in the mailroom. Of course, there's no Internet and magazines that had engineering or anything that dealt with management that were back there in the newsroom, not, I wouldn't open anybody's mail. I would read those things during my lunch hour. I wanted to learn what he knew about public broadcasting. I'd go to all the meetings I could, and what I did, I was pretty sneaky. I would see if I could go to a conference. they say no money, and i call a friend. i say, can you get me on a panel <laughs> <laughs> so I can get to the conference? I'd go back and say, they want me to be on a panel can, can I go? Well, well of, course, of course, you know, you're going to represent the station. <laughs> so I also learned, too, Tom, that you had to forge your way because I'd be at the table and I'd give a, an, a, a suggestion. And because I'm the only woman at the table sometimes and a black woman, uh, it would be poo-pooed. Uh, oh, we don't think that's a good—I mean, they just come right out and say, we don't think it's a good suggestion. I learned to say later on when someone would come up with the same idea— well, thank you. I said that 10 minutes ago. I'm glad you liked my idea. Now let's see how we can move forward with it. So, so I you learned reclaimed I learned the tricks of the trade. Yes, I did. We'll be back after this message. Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. 
The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations, an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Being a first is always difficult, but I, I want now your sort of reflection, if we could. Um, I don't think it's any secret that PBS, uh, public television, and NPR on, on radio are going through racial difficulties now uh, as to their staffing and inclusion and as to their programming. I mean, PBS is amazingly white. Uh, how did you deal with that? I, you were on a lot of boards. You know, are, are they going to come out on the other side of this at some point? And why is it taking so long? When I look at the country now, it's not getting any better. It's getting harder to forge through the barriers because of some of the laws and some of the rules. Some, you, you can't be something unless you can see something sometimes. And, and I don't know, except for my mama Thelma who raised me, I don't know how I w where I would be where I am, except she said, whatever you want to do, you can, you can do it. And she kept drilling that into me. But for some people in, in, in their home lives and their cultures, uh, they can't see it, so they can't do it, and they're afraid to take the steps. I wasn't afraid. I'd go into a room. Here I am. I walk. I, I'd learn to. If I was going to a conference, I'd look at the list of attendees. They'd send that to you early. Sure. If there was someone I wanted to talk to, I'd learn their background. You didn't have internet, so I'd try to find what I could. Talk to other people. See them in a room. I walk up to Gwen, Gwen Eiffel. My name is. Bill Moyers, my name is, you know, I watched your last program on. So I had learned how to do my homework. But everybody doesn't think like that, and they're not as bold and won't take those steps. So I encourage women and men to do that, black men and women to do but, that. But you had to do more. I you, had you to do You always much had more. to do more. It wasn't good enough more. just to be. Mm -mm. You had to be more. I had a producer once. I'd graduated, and I wrote this copy for him, and he looked at me, and he said, I think you need to go back to school and get your degree. I just graduated. You know, I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, and, but we became very good friends. He was very critical, but I still learned a lot from him, David Hopper. I'll never forget him. But that first go-round, those things, those kinds of things happen. And I think for some people, you get that discouragement. You just give up, and you asked me that question earlier. You get discouraged. You say, I can't do this. I don't want to work in this industry anymore. You go into the room. You're ignored. And that's why it's so hard for blacks to get into the industry. I saw it. I experienced it. And unless you've got a good field of people, as you talked about, around you and a good grounding and good root system, 
you, you can't make it, and, and it's, it's going to be difficult. And unfortunately, it's still hard today. It's still very hard. Still very hard. You came to Ohio University and WOUB in 1997 and uh, retired from uh, general manager here at WOUB in 2011. Uh, you also, in 1997, became an ordained minister. Now, uh, <laughs> did that have any connection with coming to oh, WOUB? Yeah. I, I better get prayed up for this. Huh? <laughs> you better be connected before you branch out. No. Uh, obviously, that was something that you were interested in. Your faith is, is I know, very important to you. Uh, why did you do that? I've been in church, when I say literally, all, my, all of my life from a little thing. And um, when I went to Morgantown, I was very active, well, very active in my home church in Bluefield and then went to school, same way, in the AME church. And uh, I have been in Baptist churches, Pentecostal, apostolic. I was sprinkled in the Methodist church, uh, dumped in the apostolic church. I mean, we visited different churches. Sure. And, you know, baptized in the apostolic church. So I've got a little bit of everything in me. But uh, directed choirs, you know, I've been a musician, I played flute, just a lot of things. And so I was the uh, youth director in Morgantown and missionary president and for the state as well. Sure. And was asked to speak a lot and got an evangelist, evangelist, evangel, my evangelist license. And... Um, so my husband, Bob, I don't think you ever met him. I don't know if you did. I, I did. You met Bob. Yes. Well, we were both kind of in ministry together, and uh, we started, we became friends with the Baptist minister and his wife, so we started going to their church. And uh, Bob looked at me one day, and I looked at him, and we just said, okay, we're in this. We just need to be ordained so we can... I can marry you, Tom. I can bury you. I can baptize you. I can give you communion. And I've done all of those. <laughs> <laughs> a full table I've done of all services. I've married uh, about 25 couples or so, and I've baptized. I've given communion, and I've buried a couple of people. Well, when I was judge, I could marry people. But yes, that's right. The, the, the bad part was when I moved to a different court, I divorced a lot of people <laughs> So at least that's you didn't have good. to do that. That's at least you good. didn't have to do that. But that's how they came about. We just wanted to be able to be more effective in ministry. You, especially when you came here at WOUB, as you became more mature in your uh, profession, mm -hmm. you were on a lot of national boards, mm -hmm. and I mean really high-ranking national boards and held office. How important was that for you as a black woman, not just as GM here at WOUB, but as a black woman to have that representation? You know, it's interesting. At the time, I didn't think about it a lot. I um, would try to make informed decisions when I was in meetings, just informed comments I, I would listen. I listened more than I talked, actually. I would go to different meetings, and I would just listen and gather it all in. But then after I saw that I was the only woman and sometimes black woman around the table, I said, this is, this is really important. 
I said that many times in my mind, you know, I don't know how I got here. <laughs> Sometimes what I'm doing here, I don't know as much as they know. I better make sure I stay, in, stay informed and, and be uh, read up and with ordination prayed up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but um, it was important, and I knew that I was opening some doors that other women could walk into, and I better get it right. That's what I kept saying. I better get this right. It, that had to be a heavy load. It was. For for you to carry, mm-hmm. not only for your race, but mm-hmm. for your gender. Yeah. I mean, you were a twofer. That's you right. Know, and, yeah. and, and you were representing women, and you were mm-hmm. representing the African-American mm-hmm. community, and you were representing black women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So every place you went, mm-hmm. uh, you had to carry that load. That had to mm-hmm. be a terrible burden sometimes. And then when I got sick and had to use a wheelchair, it was a threefer. I was representing people with disabilities okay. as well. And I remember I came here, and I don't know if you remember Paul Wiskowski. He said, oh, you're going to look good on our reports to CPP. <laughs> <laughs> we got three for one. I said, Paul, just, you know, let's let it go. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it At the time, I just kept saying, get it right. It wasn't so much of a burden, but I was learning so much at the time. It was such a wonderful experience. I mean, I got to go to Sesame Street in New York and met Big Bird. I had breakfast with Gordon for our station's fifth anniversary. And just knowing I was getting all of these experiences, learning all along, but still being the one in the room. It wasn't so heavy, but just, just keep doing what you do. And just be yourself and get it right. Don't be anybody but you, but just get it right. Yeah. Okay, now I want to move forward. We've okay. got roughly 10 minutes left, and I want to talk about now. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, first, before we do that, you got a Ph.D. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2007, you know, 36 mm-hmm. years after your undergraduate At the age degree. of 58. At the age of 58. <laughs> in a wheelchair. Why? <laughs> I had a good friend named Penny, and she was my best friend in Morgantown. And she got her Ph.D., and I remember working with Penny and when she was trying to go to Kinko's and print off all of this stuff. And it was such a celebration when she got it. I said to myself, one day I'm going to follow in her footsteps. So Penny passed away, and I kept a promise to her to get this thing, to get to get the Ph.D. because she kept pushing me. And uh, that's one reason why. I just And after I came to the university and I knew that tuition was free, I might as well take advantage of it while, I can, while I'm working here. So that's why I did it. it amazing yeah. testament mm-hmm. to lifelong learning. It is. Though, um, it as is. you said, you learned uh, on the job mm-hmm. and you learned through all of your national associations. Mm-hmm. And then you actually went back to class. Right. Uh, to learn, yeah. and as a result, yeah. uh, have taught hundreds mm-hmm. of students. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's interesting, and, too, that being an older person in the class, all the younger ones knew this theory. You know, and I'm thinking, sitting in the class, I don't know what they know, but my experience mattered, so it evened out in the classroom. Well, it was, mm-hmm. whenever I'm in that situation, mm-hmm. it was, gee, I'm glad I now know there's a name for what I've been doing. <laughs> Last ten years, you know, whatever that theory was. <laughs> whatever yeah. that theory whatever was. was. Okay, that's right. what it was. Uh, 
I want to talk about two things you're doing now because I know they're very important to you. One is your uh, philanthropy, and you are co-founder and chairperson of the Dr. Carolyn Foster Bailey Lewis Family mm-hmm. Foundation. Um, talk about that and how important that is to you, and what do you do with that? Okay. I'm co-founder with my daughter, Karen. Uh, a few years ago, I, I was life-flighted, and I was really sick. I had my blood pressure dropped to 40 over 10. Oh, my. Didn't know I was going to make it. And so uh, after I was coming through, Karen said, well, I want to do something if my mom doesn't make it to memory, in her memory. So she started it. She did all the paperwork. And so, of course, I came through. And so we decided to make it a family foundation. My daughter, you might not know this, Tom, had kidney failure. And mm. for six years, she was on dialysis. If you see her today, you never know it. She came to Athens to help me, and in the process, she got a new kidney in Charleston Hospital. She registered there in 2017. She's doing great uh, working, working on her PhD now. Wonderful. So we founded this foundation to help people with chronic illnesses and kidney disease because she said in Dallas, she saw so many people who didn't know how, to, how they were going to get home with money and food and all of that, so that's what we're doing. And in me being... In a wheelchair, I see a lot of people with disabilities who don't know how they're going to pay for books or tuition. So that's what we're trying to do. I don't know whether you see yourself being in a wheelchair as a disability. I don't think that that's the right word. But how has that experience in your health struggles helped shape your view? That's a great question. Uh, I could say it's in the book, and it really is going to be in the book. But um, I had to learn to be a new me because when you go from being upright to having to use a wheelchair, people see you in a whole different sense. Tom, we could go to a restaurant, and we pull up to the same table. They'll look at you and say, what does she want? Like you're a non-person. I'm invisible. And so I had to learn how, again, all over how to speak up for myself. You know, I can order for myself, talk to me, just in a kind way to let them know. It would be a teachable moment. I'd always use them as teachable moments for people who didn't know how to talk to people, whether they were blind or deaf or whatever, or we used a wheelchair. So it's a different experience. Uh, Become an advocate for disability rights and um, just... A lot of changes, university, wherever. I've got a thick folder of letters that everywhere I go, if things are not right, I write back and say, you know, you need to fix this. <laughs> or this worked. I praise them at the same time. So it's been a whole different experience. And I've um, written a book about it and my experiences in rehab. It's coming out next month. It's called oh. Love and Loss, oh, The Storied Nature of Nursing Home Care. And I've been in six nursing homes, seven hospitals over my 26 years after the spinal cord tumor. And so I've interviewed other people, and I even talk about bingo because it's very important <laughs> in rehab and nursing home and therapy dogs. So it's coming out next month in November. The other thing that you're doing is that you're co-founder and CEO of Life Day Greeting Cards. Now, these are not your typical greeting cards. These are specialty items. 
what are they? How did you get involved? And mm-hmm. is this how you drew back your old friend from West Virginia? <laughs> Remember the life flight that I talked about? Yeah. The near-death experience. Yeah. When my birthday came around that year, I posted on Facebook what had happened to me and how I was thankful to be alive for another year. This is my life day. Pulled it out of the air. Karen, my daughter, said to me, where'd you get that? I said, I don't know. I just said life day. She said, you know, we ought to think about this. And I searched it out. It wasn't trademarked. I got the U.S. trademark for it. And uh, we developed a lot of cards that says, Happy Life Day, and you open it up, there's an autumn leaf on the outside, like it's still fall in your life, excuse me. You open it up, there's a green leaf, you got new life. Happy Life Day, congratulations on your successful transplant. You are a survivor. Survivor is the theme throughout. Congratulations on defeating cancer, that's the second card. Congratulations on your breakthrough. Congratulations on your recovery, on your baby, your baby is the uh, beauty of survival, and we've got themes for each card, but survival is the theme because I look at myself as a survivor, so did my daughter. and there, I've never seen any cards like that. So the, the um, website is ready. It's going to go live in, this is October, the end of this month. That's wonderful. And um, so that's how that came to be, just life day. I know you're being honored in, at the university, and, and that's wonderful, but I know you have, beyond just receiving honors, have so much to give people. And my last question is, I, I would like for you to expound, if, if you would. Mm-hmm. There are so many young people at this university, other universities, and people who are not at universities who consider themselves other, whether it's because of a perceived disability or whether it's because of race or, or gender or, or orientation, they consider themselves as outsiders and other. You've been other for a large part of your life, but you've not only survived but triumphed. What advice do you give to these young people who might hear your words? Don't give up. It's never too late. I encourage people now, if they're in their 40s, 50s, 60s, you're never too old to do what you want to do. You're never too poor. There's always a way. Uh, I have a friend that was here in a real broken-down wheelchair. I said, Necker, how do you make it? If I can't go under it, I go over it. If I can't go around it, I go through it. And so she finished her master's and went back to Nigeria, thriving. So you just have to find a way and find the helpers. Find There's always a scholarship. There's always a grant. There's always somebody to help who's been in your shoes. Uh, You just have to keep looking, keep searching. Don't give up. And you're never too old. I had a, uh, I was working on a paper one night, all night long. Matt Lauer came on the Today Show. He was interviewing a 100-year-old woman who had just gotten her her bachelor's from Harvard. He said, what are you going to do next? She said, learn how to use a computer. 
I said, okay, I kept typing. I can do this. I'll stay up all night till it gets done. So that's my advice. Just never, ever give up. There's always a way. You just have to find that way from somebody, somehow, and, and just be interested in what you're doing and be interesting. And there's always somebody to help. I, I think one other example that you display just by your persona is continuing to do things. Mm-hmm. You know, you and I are at the age where we could pack it in and, you know, we've got the, yeah. the Vitas and the resumes mm-hmm. and we don't have to add anything right. more. But you're still doing things. You're still creating. You're still doing your foundation. You're still doing your greeting card company. You're writing books. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're releasing publications. You know, this has got to be an exciting time of your life. It is. I know COVID has been awful, but it stirred up some creative juices because I couldn't do anything, couldn't go anywhere. So I thought, okay, I better make best use of this time. But it goes back to what I said. You're never too old. And you just have to think creatively. What do I want to do? I mean, I could, like you, we could just curl up and go by the fire and get some hot chocolate and coffee and say, this is it. But I've just got this go in me. I just want to keep going. I've got things to do. I want to go to the Grand Canyon, Tom. I want to travel. I still want to go places and see things. I want to take a train ride somewhere. I've got this bucket list, and the biggest bucket list is Jeopardy. There's some days I know a lot. Some days I know nothing. But if I can get this guy off of there now, I don't know if he wants. <laughs> but I, I, there are things that I still have in my psyche to do. I've got grandchildren. I've got adult children. You know, I want to spend time with them and just keep going and, and just be a model for them that you can do whatever you put your mind to, no matter if you're walking, talking, blind, in a wheelchair, whatever. Just don't give up. Never stop learning. Don't that- give up. Dr. Carolyn Baylor-Lewis, thank you so much for spending some private time with us. I, I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Tom. Today, we've been talking to Dr. Carolyn Bailey-Lewis, a pioneer in public broadcasting. She's shared with us the ups and downs of her career. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. And Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover in the future, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Have a good day, everyone.